Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today Matt and I are going to be talking about some of the things that are happening in the world of mountain biking this year. So right now, mountain biking seems to be riding a wave of popularity, and it's a really good time to be a rider. We're seeing progression on everything from bikes and trails to racing, and so we thought it would be helpful to preview some of those trends that we're tracking in 2019 here on the podcast. So we used to have a, a segment called grinding our gears and stoking our spokes. And so we're going to try to keep to that format. A lot of people really enjoyed that, but we had to, we had to stop that because it's hard to come up with new stuff every week, honestly. But we can definitely think of some things that are stoking our spokes for 2019. So let's start with that, Matt. What's one of the things that you're excited about for this year? Well, we've been talking about it a lot over the past few months, and especially once we got to Interbike and kind of saw a lot of this more affordable gear that's coming out, just a, a, affordable everything, like affordable MIPS helmets, affordable apparel for, for people. So I think that's, you know, it's one more barrier of entry that people get into mountain biking and then realize, oh my gosh, even the jerseys cost like $80. So yeah, I think what's driving this too, there's a lot of things actually. I mean, one, people have been saying this for years and they'll keep saying it even as things become more affordable, but people say mountain biking is expensive and a lot of these companies are hearing that and they're finally doing something about it. You also have the rise of Nika, I think, which is getting a lot of high schoolers involved and high schoolers, they themselves don't have any money, but even their parents are loath to like spend a lot of money getting them into a sport that maybe they're only going to do for a year or two. And so again, companies are like, how can we make bikes more affordable for first time riders and, you know, even the gear and the jerseys and stuff. And then even with the bikes, we're starting to see more affordable options come back too, right? Yeah, certainly. I mean, one of the reviews you recently did was the, the San Quentin, you know, which there are some trade-offs for a $1,300 hardtail mm-hmm. uh, that you noticed and but I mean, still for, for somebody who's really getting into it, I know that was like, I spent roughly 1500 on my first serious mountain bike mm-hmm. and that was a used one. So to be able to go out and spend like less than $2,000 on a brand new bike is, I think it's pretty notable. Yeah. And we saw too, I mean, it's been a couple of years now, but there was a time where a lot of the high end bikes, a lot of bike companies were only offering carbon fiber models mm-hmm. on their bikes. And now we're starting to see more aluminum offerings, you know, taking these carbon bikes and then making essentially the same frame using all the same geometry and everything, but offering an aluminum version uh, to keep prices down, which is is good as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, I feel like it's making a, a pretty big uh, comeback. Yeah. I mean, like you mentioned, it's seemed like brands almost wanted to do away with it for a while. And then they're like, oh, there's like this market segment that we're kind of ignoring by excluding people from having these bikes and if you can just keep that model with an aluminum frame and knock off i don't know a thousand dollars in some cases for the same bike then Mm -hmm. it's a pretty good idea yeah and even within carbon itself what we see is that things like wheels like carbon rims and wheels are becoming more affordable because unlike aluminum stuff where you're basically kind of like assembling tubes together like one at a time, sort of like in a one-off process with carbon, you have a mold. So the big cost of that is like creating these molds and setting up the tooling and everything. But once that's set up, there are these economies of scale. And so we're seeing prices for carbon bikes and carbon wheel sets that have been around for a few seasons really dropping off. I mean, we saw, I guess it's been a year, maybe two years since Bontrager dropped the price on their carbon wheels. But I mean, they dropped them by like 50%. I mean, it went from like paying 2,400 bucks for a set of carbon wheels to 1,200 bucks. And, and then others followed suit as well. I think Reynolds has a carbon set for about that price. And so, yeah, we're seeing those economies of scale work as mountain biking becomes more popular and as people are buying more and more gear. Yeah, FSA, I believe, also. Uh, I think that was one of the products I covered at Interbike was they had a, was it their gradient 
wheel set, uh, if I'm remembering right, that was, yeah, I think like 1300 bucks for a carbon wheel set. Yeah. Still a lot of money, but much more affordable than it used to be. Yeah, definitely. So one of the other stories that we're covering, by the time this podcast comes out, I guess the story will have been published, but seems like mountain bike racing is becoming more accessible and definitely more fun. Have you seen this yourself, Matt? Yeah, right. Nike has been getting a lot of coverage, which, yeah, if you can put a sport like mountain biking into a more mainstream area like schools, uh, definitely public schools, then you have, I mean, yeah, you have more people that are getting introduced to the sport, which is really, really cool, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Nike, their main driver doesn't seem to be necessarily competition. I mean, that's part of it. It is very competitive, but at the same time, Everybody gets to race. You know, it's not like going out for the football team where you might be sitting the bench the whole game because you're you're not as good as the other people. You know, it's designed so that everybody gets a chance to race and participate. And again, a lot of the coaches, they place their focus on just kids having a good time, like challenging themselves, but not like killing themselves and hating it. So that's that's really cool to see. Yeah, because several years ago, mountain biking seemed to really embrace like suffering and goodness cross-country racing was just grueling i mean still is but people are choosing to do less of that i think um and we'll see that this year and then there are also these races you know stage races like the pisgah stage race that while they're races they're really designed to be just like an amazing experience you know like it's not just about the racing that's like a small part of a lot of these events now some of the epic ride events as well like where there's like almost a festival atmosphere around it and the competition takes i don't know if they would like to hear people say this but it takes a second seat to all the other stuff that's going on which i think is really cool yeah uh, and even enduro racing I, I think the gain of that has been just because it's a more accessible or people can um, see themselves racing in that more easily than they can uh, a downhill or an XC race. Like you can take your everyday bike and enter a, an, an enduro race to where, you know, with XC racing or downhill racing, that's not the bike that you're going to ride every day probably. Yeah. Enduro is, is a huge part of that and making racing fun again. And really it's getting back to the roots of the start of mountain biking. I mean, timing people on the downhills and having sort of a party atmosphere around it that I think is a really positive thing for the sport. Yeah, absolutely. So another thing that's stoking my spokes and I think a lot of other people as well are hardcore hardtails. And this is a term I wanted to see. I feel like Aaron Chamberlain was one of the first to use that phrase several years ago, talking about like more aggressive hardtails. Um, but yeah, we're seeing it pop up everywhere. And basically, I don't know what's driving it. I think what's driving it maybe is the availability of like bigger tires, wider rims, dropper posts. All of these things are making the hardtail experience much better <laughs> than it used to be. Yeah, I know that's that's true for me. I mean, I started out on a hardtail and for many years, got away from that and was riding full suspension. But now that I'm coming back to it and seeing these additions to the bikes, it really is a lot more fun than it used to be. What do you think it is about the bikes that have really progressed to that point to where you can have near as much fun on the hardtail as, as you can on a, a full suspension? I mean, I, I think a big part of it is the components. Like the dropper post is huge. I mean, you put a dropper on any bike and it's going to improve it a ton. But hardtails, you know, they're naturally good at climbing. And so if you can get the seat up high for climbing and be in like an efficient climbing position, but then you can drop it down low for the descents, the bikes are just way more capable. I just remember riding hardtails with a, with a rigid seat and feeling like I'm going over the bars like every time I'm going downhill. And yeah. that's, that's not fun either way. And then the geometry is progressing as well. People are, all bikes are getting slacker. And so when you do that to a hardtail, it makes it more comfortable. It's a better ride and a lot more fun. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, a little bit more comfort, a lot more adjustability. Yeah. And the tires, tires make a big difference as well. Cause again, you don't have that suspension and it can kind of smooth out the trail for you. It's not suspension. It's not like putting a plus tire on is going to you know, make your hardtail feel like a full suspension, but it is going to take some of the sting out of it. Yeah. The tire development 
definitely has to play a part. I remember because I started on a hardtail too, this old Schwinn Mesa with tubes and uh, was just always plagued with flats. <laughs> yeah. Always, always. Yeah, I would think tire inserts probably too. I haven't, mm. trying to think, I don't know if I've run tire inserts on any of my hardtails, but that definitely yeah adds to the confidence on it and even improve sort of the damping of that like tire bounce that you might get out of a plus tire. Yeah. So another thing that we're seeing this year that's pretty stoke worthy is the rise of mountain bike tourism. And because of this, because it's a real thing now, uh, we're seeing a lot more trail development. Matt, what are some of the stories that you've been seeing over the last year or so in this regard? Yeah, this is getting really, really big. And it's almost like a three-way partnership with trail developers, so mountain bike advocates, local business, and then media to where, you know, for a a little while you're going to see local business working with trail developments and then, you know, talking to people like us, media, and be like, hey, like we have some really killer trails out here right now. Can you get the word out? If you can build a lot of really great trails close to a town that's going to have good business, good food, good drinks, make it really, really appealing to a lot of people to travel to. Yeah. You're going to start something really, really positive. Yeah. And a few years ago, maybe three or four years ago, there really wasn't a lot of data on this. You know, groups like EMBA were starting to tell towns and, and places like, look, mountain bike tourism is real. Like if you build trails, people are going to come and it's going to help your local economy. And so I, that time, you know, several years ago, there were these studies that were being done and those studies have been completed and show that, yep, it's a real thing, mountain bike tourism. And so a lot of communities have gotten on board based on seeing the data and seeing that, that this is real. And now we're at a stage where communities seem to almost be competing with one another, you know, to be like the tourism draw for their region or you know, a lot of them even nationally. I mean, you saw like Arkansas rise up and and everybody's heard of it and everybody's like, I want to go to Arkansas, which that would have been hard to imagine a few years ago. Hard to imagine seeing that as more than like a regional draw. But if you make big investments, like it's, it's been shown that, that it works and people, it gets people talking. Like you said, the media is a big part of it. And so if you can build that buzz, people are going to start visiting and yeah, it's good for all of us. Yeah, definitely. Arkansas. i I remember, I think, hearing a couple of things about it maybe like four or five years ago. I was like, what, Arkansas? Why? (laughs) Then you see some of like the trails and stuff that they have down there and you're like, holy cow, that looks insane. Yeah. Yeah, places like that or Fruta or St. George, Utah, Marquette, Michigan has been in the media a lot lately. We spent time in Vermont last year and just seeing these places grow like crazy. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about the rise of enduro racing, but this seems to be a trend that's going to continue as well. Not just the racing, but the bikes, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, personally, I think enduro racing is push bike development maybe more than anything in the past five years and you saw like this discipline grow like crazy and then the demands for it grew like crazy also and uh brands really pushed themselves to give ath- or give athletes what they wanted uh their bikes to do on race courses and so now you have really really progressive suspension designs dropper posts good tire technology just all these things that have have been inspired by by enduro racing yeah the hip pack one of my favorites <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But you're seeing, I mean, it's, that's how mountain biking has been since the beginning. And it took me a while to realize that how much racing and competition drives everything else in the industry, all the products and the technology that are available. And so Enduro, you know, it was really, people are pushing for things to get lighter, but also a lot stronger and more durable. And you're seeing even things like one of the packs that you reviewed recently has a back protector built into it. And that's something that enduro racers need. And it's a great technology that even people who don't race enduro now have that option to get with their, with their hydration pack. So yeah, we're really seeing when people push the envelope like they are with enduro right now, everybody benefits basically. Definitely. Yeah. That pack with the back protector. I mean, you know, most of people think back protectors and equipment like that when they go ride a bike park their first time and get suited up in all this heavy plastic armor. But the, yeah, that pack, it's, it's not crazy expensive. That armor is really lightweight, so you can take it out if you want to. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I've just been leaving it in just because it's not it's not that heavy. So Yeah. And we're seeing too, I mean, Enduro is growing up as a discipline as well, you know, with the Enduro World Series 
uh, sort of partnering up with the UCI and we're seeing more athletes gravitate toward that as well. I mean, it's, it's something that's definitely still on the rise and we're going to probably see more money going into enduro and more races popping up. Uh, that's definitely a trend that's going to be around for at least the next few years. Definitely. Yeah. The UCI partnership and now I think internationally it's been really recognized to where the UCI maybe didn't want to at first, but now that it is so serious and competitive that you have things like doping control, it's probably going to get a lot more serious. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, one of the things you mentioned just now when we're talking about enduro racing and with the hardcore hardtails are dropper posts. And it's been a few years, but we surveyed single tracks readers to find out how many people were running dropper posts. And at the time, I think it was right around 50%. Maybe it was a little less. And it seems like there's still a good number of holdouts, people that aren't sold on the benefits for a dropper post. But man, there are a lot of them out there and there's not a lot of excuses left for not running one these days, right? I mean, almost every brand new bike comes with one. Yeah, to where this was kind of a feature in that build kit story finished up on and how you can buy a a very entry-level bike for 2000 bucks and it has an entry level dropper post to where, you know, five years ago, it was only the top tier bikes that were coming with dropper posts because it's like this new technology and the technology hadn't really trickled down yet. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what kept a lot of people away from, I mean, there's a lot of drawbacks to dropper posts, especially when they first came out. So they, they certainly add a lot of weight. I mean, that hasn't changed a lot. We're seeing dropper posts, they weigh, they certainly weigh less than when they first came out, but there is still a weight penalty there. A big, big barrier was price as well. And that one has changed a lot. I mean, now you can get a decent dropper post for under $200, which isn't too bad, especially considering the cost of a bike. And like you said, it's coming on more the entry level builds as well. And then reliability was always a problem uh, with the early dropper posts. And that was the reason I was not an early adopter myself because I like my bike stuff to just be like reliable and I'm not going to have to worry about it because I don't really enjoy tinkering with my bike on the side of the trail. And so, but now shoot, you, most of the dropper posts, you're not going to have any problems with them. They've worked out a lot of those issues. And so, yeah, there really, there really isn't a lot of excuses left for not running one these days. Yeah. The internal technology is definitely getting better on them. Right. Cause that's the thing. I mean, you, you spend four or 500 bucks on a new dropper post a few years ago and the internal seals fail on them within the first year and they get all bouncy and you're like, well, <laughs> What did I just spend my money on? Yeah. And then you got to rebuild it. And that's what, 100, 150 bucks. And um, I can definitely see where or see why people would have waited out the technology to get a little bit better. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it seems like it seems like it's definitely getting better. Yeah. And it's one of those things, too, where if everybody's not running them right now, they will be in the future. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, you and I and probably anybody who runs one is like, man, I can't imagine riding without one now. Um, so it just takes some time to like transition over. And the good thing is there are so many choices on the market today. We did a piece rounding up basically all the dropper posts we could find, all the brands that are making dropper posts. And we ended up with over 30 different brands. And then within those brands, you know, they have different models and travel lengths and diameters and features. And so, there's something to meet everybody's needs, no matter what those might be. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, competition drives better technology. So right. When it was, when they, when they first came out, it was like just KS, just kind shock was making them basically. And then rock shocks and then Fox got into the game and now there's like everybody. Yeah. It's pretty cool to try all the different ones. And yeah, we've had the opportunity to review, a lot of those. And so, yeah, if you're interested, definitely check out the roundup we did. And also you can check out some of the reviews that we've done as well to get more info. So another component thing that we're seeing these days is on bike storage for tools and even hydration, all that kind of stuff. And again, this one, man, I wonder if this one is driven by Enduro too. Maybe, maybe the biggest thing is like Enduro is like, eating the, the world of mountain biking and it's <laughs> <laughs> everything is like tied back to that. But yeah, we're seeing people bike packing too, I think 
probably is driving this as well, but we're seeing people for sure trying to get stuff off their backs and put it on their bikes. What are some of the examples you've seen lately, Matt? Yeah, there's a lot of creativity out there, especially with bike packing. Now that you mention it, um, you see like frame bag designers for this getting, I mean, they'll do custom frame designs and pretty much anything you want. Yeah, I would definitely say Enduro has driven a lot of it also. So you see things like uh, the one up, the EDC everyday carry toolkit that goes in your steer tube. Yeah. Yeah. When that came out, what that was like at Seattle a few years ago, wasn't it? Yeah. And it kind of blew a lot of people's minds. <laughs> yeah. And since that time, people were like, oh, why don't we put one in the bottom bracket? And how about the uh, axle? <laughs> or like, yeah. you know, you've got specialized with the SWAT door that's like inside the frame and number of people, Topeak and Blackburn and others who have the like water bottle cage that has a built-in little tool spot in it. So yeah, there's so many solutions out there and people are there. These aren't just gimmicks. Like people are into it and they're actually buying them and putting them on their bikes. Yeah. I, I try and do it as much as possible, especially like I noticed that if I'm going on a long ride, I'm going to take a hydration pack like over an hour and a half, two hours, just because you can't you know, you might as well be uncomfortable and have everything that you need. Yeah, if you're just going on a local ride after work or something like that, why not be more comfortable, feel a little bit more athletic with how you handle your bike and put gear on your bike, and get it off your back, get it off your core. For me, I've always felt like the benefits are moving your bike around a little bit more easily. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of the people that I ride with, uh, even on just regular weekday rides, will they'll use their frame bags. You know, they might have them for bike packing or whatever, but people are just leaving the frame bags on their bikes and using all that storage. And that's a ton of storage. I mean, you can, you can put an extra layer in there. You can yeah. put water bottles or beer cans or whatever you need into those bags. I mean, they're massive. And so for a lot of people, there's no need to carry stuff on their backs anymore. And then bike companies too have gradually started putting uh, water bottle mounts back on their bikes. You know, they're, they're going through the trouble of like redesigning the suspension to allow for that. I mean, that was the problem yeah. for a long time was just the frame clearances weren't there for water bottles. And that was one of the things the designers nixed. They're like, Oh, well, we could do this sweet suspension, but it's not going to be room for a water bottle. And so that's how they rolled for a while. But consumers are like, nah, we want we want to be able to carry stuff on our bikes. And so the designers have worked around that and we got our, our bottle mounts back. Yeah. I, I think uh pivot with that new firebird where it's probably one of the only brands that was just like, no, like we couldn't really get the frame <laughs> stiffness we want. We can't get the suspension design we want with the bottle in the cage. So you, you can still get it on, on the bottom of the down tube, but yeah, even brands like Yeti have like really kept that in mind when designing their new bikes that, People want it in the frame. Yep. And the, I mean, the same thing, I guess if you're trying to run a frame bag on a full suspension, that's generally not going to work anyway, but the more space there is in that front triangle, the better in a lot of people's opinions. And so it's cool to see that changing. So finally, one of the other things that's stoking my spokes is more trails being built pretty much everywhere and not just due to tourism. So one of the other drivers seems to be people just finally realize like they hate driving in their cars to go mountain biking. And so there's this demand, at least where I live, you know, in a fairly urban area uh, in a city to have more accessible trails and people are getting together to make that happen. Yeah. That's a big push from Imba coming this year is building more trails close to home. I've yeah, I've seen more bike specific trails and newer trails popping up where I live here in uh, Golden, Colorado, you know, which isn't, it's not really highlighted as a, a tourist destination per se, but um, again, just smart mountain bike advocacy, working with land managers better. Um, and it, it seems like land managers are starting to understand mountain biking a little bit more and are more willing to uh, allow mountain bike specific trails and mountain bike trail building. Yeah. And I think too, people's perception of what mountain biking is, has changed a little bit. I mean, it used to be again, cross-country focused so people just assume like oh if you want a mountain bike trail it's got to have at least you know five miles or something and I think a lot of people are pushing back against that and saying no you know a pump track is fine or yeah here in Atlanta 
We've got some new trails and parks coming online that are really short loops. You know, they'll have like a mile long loop, but it'll have like some really cool features along the way, you know, like rock stuff. And, you know, they're building these like black diamond rated trails in these smaller city parks. And again, like maybe that's an enduro thing. I mean, people aren't, people are like, they're just going to go out and session these, you know, cool little features and these drops and things. And like, I don't know, work on skills during the week because yeah, driving to the trailhead just sucks. Yeah. The urban bike park thing is really, really catching on across, across the country. And I'm sure the world, I saw another little news story blip up today about a new one being built in Tucson. And, and we have a couple here in, in, uh, Colorado. But yeah. I mean, you go there and it's not just like serious enthusiasts. It's kids taking their, or it's families taking their kids to ride a pump track on their strider bike or, um, you know, on these little wooden features and stuff like that. And, you know, on top of that, you got pros going out there to practice their jumps or just the everyday person after work. So cities are definitely seeing a, a huge appeal with these urban bike parks. Yeah. And I think it, it probably ties in, you kind of touched on it, like with the growing the diversity of the sport, if you will. So, you know, Nike is getting more popular and, and again, there's, there are Nike athletes here where I live, but there's nowhere for them to ride really. I mean, they they have to drive 30 or 45 minutes to go practice. And so again, there's these, these kids, these new groups of people who want to ride bikes, want to get into mountain biking. So they're going to need places to ride and that's finally starting to happen. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So speaking of trends, you know, we did a piece on single tracks a few weeks ago, sort of giving our predictions, talking about some of the trends we expect to see this year. What are some of the trends that have faded or, or will continue to fade in the coming years? I mean, we, we mentioned the stuff that's, that's coming. What's the stuff that's going away? Yeah. Another thing I think we kind of saw at Interbike, um, I know we were talking to some wheel manuf- manufacturers who are, they're just not really seeing a demand for plus size tires or wheels anymore. Mm-hmm. And that was, I don't know what, three years ago, maybe where there's this huge flux of, Hey, there's, now that you've just gotten used to 29 inch tires and 27.5 inch tires, now we have this other new tire size, this plus size tire thing. And it seemed like people were really into it. And then I'm sure there, there's definitely people who are still into it, but, uh, brands are seeing sales fading, you know, and they're just, if they don't see the sales, they're not going to continue making something. So, yeah. And a lot of the big product announcements in the past six to eight months, seem to have centered around 29er wheels. So that doesn't bode well for 27.5 as a wheel size. We're seeing fewer of those. Some companies that like switched, I think Giant switched like most of their line to 27.5 and we're seeing them bringing the 29er back. And so that's got to be at the expense of 27.5. So yeah, who knows? Who knows if 27.5 will continue to be like a major choice or if it's just going to be kind of a niche in the future, but it doesn't, doesn't look good for 27.5. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of shift to 29ers, especially in the past year and all these long travel 29ers and everything. And I mean, it seems like they're still making them, but the highlights are definitely on 29ers right now. Yeah. And I mean, I guess this kind of begs the question too, though, if plus tires go away or aren't as popular, does that mean we're going to go to these wide trail tires as Maxis calls them, you know, like 2.5, 2.6 inch tires. What what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I like them as a front tire. You know, I I don't think I've really spent a whole lot of time on, uh, on riding two fives or two sixes as a rear tire. I mean, for that directional control, I think they're awesome. Personally, I still like a 2.3 or 2.4 in the rear, something that's not, not too difficult to pedal on. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's exactly what I was going to say. I think for a long time, I was excited by the fatter tires, you know, plus even fat, but just after riding all the choices for a while now, it, I'm gravitating more toward the 2.3, 2.4 is the sweet spot. I mean, even some of those mm-hmm. 2.5 inch tires can just feel really heavy and like a lot to spin around. Yeah. I mean, even if you get a, a really weighty 2.4 in the rear, like I, I pushed around the WTB judge a, a little bit in the, the past summer. It's just a really wide, really, really beefy tire. And for something like the bike park, it was great, but yeah, I was not a huge fan of like pedaling it around on my local trails. Yeah. And maybe some of it has to do with the wheel diameter as well, because 
29er, once you start pushing out to 2.5, 2.6, the, the tire is just, it's just massive. I mean, it's a lot of rubber and it's a lot of rotational weight. And so that could have something to do with it too. Like maybe I would prefer something wider on a 27.5 wheel. So maybe that's what we'll see. We'll see more of that. I mean, as we are with 27.5 plus, you don't see a lot of 29 plus or 26 plus. It's all 27 plus. With fat biking, it seems like that's tapered off a little bit. I would say so. I think there's probably just as many people doing it as there have been in the past, but it's definitely not the big like buzz thing that it was a few years ago. Um, I did some research. I looked on Google Trends. You know, there's a this Google website where you can look and see like what people are searching for and the trends in that. And if you look at fat biking, it peaked around like, 2015 and every year there are fewer searches on fat bikes and fat biking so so yeah it seems we we hit peak fat biking part of it i think could be a lack of the equipment progression you know we haven't really seen a lot of changes there a lot of companies they were pretty quick it seems like just about every brand has at least one fat bike in their lineup yeah and we saw we saw people fill like all the niches you know there were there were fat bikes with slack head angles and fat bikes with really, really fat tires and like kind of fat tires and saw full suspension and no suspension. And so they kind of filled out like all the the possible bike types there pretty quickly. But since that time, there hasn't been a lot of like new stuff in the category, it seems. Yeah, I guess the way to tell would be to go to Walmart and see if Mongoose still has a fat bike. <laughs> so I remember they had fat bikes like... You know, they came out with like, you, you could see a mongoose fat bike in a, in a regular Walmart and that's how noticeable fat biking had gotten in, uh, yeah. in the bike industry and Walmart kind of always follows the trends with their bikes a little bit. So yeah, I wonder if they have fat bikes in stock still. Yeah. I feel like I've seen them recently at my Walmart, but they're the ones here in Georgia are like the beach cruiser type fat bikes. Mm. So yeah, maybe there's still a niche there. It seems like too, you know, maybe global warming plays a role here. I mean, when they first came out, I mean, not like, you know, the climate has changed drastically in the last like five years, but when they first came out, people were excited because they were like, Hey, this extends the riding season, you know, especially people who live for sure. Northern latitudes are saying like, Oh, it's great. Like I used to have to put my bike up, you know, for snow season and now I can ride year round, but we just keep seeing that winters are, are not as long and snowy as they used to be. And so again, like maybe it's less of a problem for people just looking to the future too, right? Like we're seeing ski resorts convert over to summer operations. Some of them aren't even doing like winter season anymore and just focusing on the bike season. And so Perhaps uh, the industry sees that long term as well. Like we're not going to sell as many fat bikes uh, as we do now, say 10 years from now. Yeah. And I'm sure mountain bikers everywhere, everywhere will be happy to have a bit longer of a season, but I don't know if we wanted it at that expense. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially for those of us at Southern latitudes where it just means it's going to be even hotter and uh, yeah, we'll need to invent some kind of some kind of bike for riding in hot conditions. I don't know what that is. Just a little AC bubble wraps around your wraps around your bike. <laughs> yeah, fans. Yeah, <laughs> like Bubble Boy. You have Bubble Bike, <laughs> right? So one of the other trends that seems to have faded recently, in my mind, is uh, race cut apparel. And this has been like every year. It's less and less. You know, probably since the '90s. But this is one of those trends that's fading, and I'm personally glad that it is. Yeah, so uh, when you say race cut apparel, what exactly do you mean? So stuff that's like designed for racing, like the super fitted clothing, the stuff that's, you know, especially the jerseys, like the tight jerseys with the three pockets in the back. Oh, yeah, yeah. Full zip, you know, kind of polyester jerseys. You know, that stuff was brought over from road biking. For sure. So Like the Lycra look. yeah. Right, exactly. The Lycra should have said that. Yeah, it, even XC racing um, gear and apparel is definitely a lot better looking than it used to be. Yeah, even the Lycra kits are look way, way, way better than they used to even a few years ago. Yeah, and the sizing, it seems like the sizing in particular has changed over the last couple of seasons 
where I used to say my regular street clothes size is a medium. And with bike apparel, I would, I would always have to go up a size. I'd have to order a large and it would still be kind of tight. And maybe that's kind of like the Euro sizing. But these days I find myself getting stuff and it's like, whoa, this is, this is too big, you know, which is like a nice thing to have because that's, that's just kind of the trend is stuff that's more comfortable um, and maybe it's going to look a little bit more casual. Yeah, one of the kits I reviewed over the summer, Sig Velocio kit, I really dug it because um, it was for, you know, I mean, it's for trail riding. I think it's for XC-minded folks, but it's a baggy kit. It's just really tailored and it fits really slim. So it's like you get to wear baggies, but it's not, you know, it's still something you can wear. Like I've, I've worn it road biking just because I'm not really into like throwing a lot of lycra on either. <laughs> so it's like a happy medium, you know. You can wear it into a bar after like, a road ride or an XC ride or something like that. And, uh, you don't feel like a dork. So, <laughs> right. I find it really interesting too, because it seems like the apparel choices have sort of come full circle or they haven't come full circle. They've actually like improved upon the original, which is to say like the first mountain bikers, they were out there in jeans and like flannel shirts and tennis shoes because that's what they had. Uh, they needed needed some of that stuff for protection because unlike road biking, you know, you're you're much more likely to crash. But then as mountain biking became like a serious sport, people took like all the performance wear from road biking and kind of didn't really adapt it. I mean, they kind of just brought it over into the sport for racing. But now we're seeing we're seeing that style come back, like that distinct mountain bike style but with the performance stuff built in. So, you know, Club Ride is a perfect example of a company that does that where they take something that, you know, is a technical jersey that has like the right materials and it's got reflective stuff on it and pockets and things and they make it look like look like one of those flannels that like Gary Fisher would have been wearing or uh, Joe Breeze, you know, doing the races back in the day. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, I I wonder how much of their apparel is inspired by by the history of like mountain bike apparel and what what folks like Gary Fisher used to wear back in the day when they were riding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's certainly a lot of it is inspired. There's so many choices these days from all the different apparel brands. A lot of it is still inspired by just current fashion trends. But then, I think we need to have sort of that heritage as well, like in our in our clothing. That's gonna it's going to make us look like mountain bikers. Yeah. Yes. Distinguished. Yes. All right, Matt. So let's, let's get down to what's grinding our gears. What's one of the things that you're seeing a trend or just something that's going on in mountain biking right now that's got your goat? Yeah. So I had a, a column, uh, last week, just a little opinion piece. And it was about the Peloton, the, uh, indoor bike, and this is inspired by my TV watching habits, apparently. <laughs> so yeah, like on, I'm sure probably most people have seen ads for it. I've seen it a lot on Hulu and then in my Instagram and, you know, the marketing just got me thinking about it um, and how much money they have. And their role is certainly more in the fitness industry, but yeah, it, made, it just got me thinking. So the whole thing is it's like a $2,500 indoor bike, you know, and then you have like a $40 monthly membership on top of that to maintain access to the online content and just this very sort of like mainstream cycling thing that's like being brought to, or the cycling thing is being brought to the mainstream America. And yeah, so I wrote a column about that and, uh, got like a hurricane of, uh, <laughs> of comments back on that. And I mean, I guess just to clarify, like my position was just like, one, the marketing is interesting to me that it's for um, people to de-stress from their lives, but then you have them plug into this online leaderboard and race against real people, but in the same sort of landscape that people play online video games on. It's, it's online participation from home. Yeah. And I don't, like my argument is just, I don't know if people need more of that escape from their daily lives that is still plugging into an online element yeah. And, and again, with the marketing and money, it just got me thinking like, Hey, wouldn't that be kind of cool if the bike, uh, bike industry had that much money and, uh, could appeal to that broad of a crowd. Yeah. The marketing part of it. I mean, that was, that was the focus, although people didn't really take that away from the column necessarily. They, they were afraid you were bashing Peloton, which, you know, there's pros and cons to it for sure. But yeah, the marketing part is interesting because for many years and probably still today, you see a fair amount of 
like mainstream brands co-opting mountain biking, like to seem cool or whatever. So it'll be like a truck commercial and show guys like loading their bikes into the truck or, or say it's like a drug, drug commercial, even where, you know, it's a, some drug that's going to like let you get back out there and live your life. And, you know, again, it's like people riding their bikes to the top of a mountain. And so, yeah, it is interesting that there definitely, you don't see like mainstream advertisements for the actual sport of mountain biking. You don't see like specialized or Trek or, mm-hmm. you know, Yeti or any of those, those people advertising really beyond like our core group. And so, yeah, that seems like people might get the wrong idea about what cycling is if that's the only message that they get. Yeah. And again, I think it's just that tie to um, how mainstream America looks at the bike. And um, once you're once you're eligible for your driver's license, like it's embarrassing to be seen on a bike anymore. And that, you know, (laughs) it's hard for adults to have fun on bikes and bikes are for kids. And yeah, just the whole thing that uh, if you're an adult in mainstream America, that you should be using a bike for fitness and not really anything else. Yeah. And, and of course the flip side is like people could use more fitness as well. You know, I mean, we, we probably complain about that just as much that people are doing nothing. So it's like something's better than nothing. And absolutely. Yeah. There's definitely nuance there. It's not a, it's not a like Peloton bad Peloton good. It's just a thing. And we're talking about it. Yeah. So one of the, speaking of comments and arguments and debates. One of the things that's grinding my gears is some of the infighting that we're seeing within the mountain bike community on a variety of issues, actually like wilderness and e-bikes. Yeah. It just seems like by doing that, we're being sort of counterproductive fighting each other rather than kind of coming together and fighting for like what we all want, which is more places to ride, cheaper equipment, you know, more accessibility as well. What's your take on that? Yeah, that's it's pretty interesting. Um, the whole, like you said, infighting. This is something that kind of came up when I was talking to Ted Stroll last time about the STC's approach and this and that. And you know, I won't really get deep into the Imba and STC battle within this, but one of the things that uh, kind of stood out was when he was making his appeal to Congress for bikes in wilderness. And okay, yeah, it's impossible not really to get into it. When Imba <laughs> sort of took their stance that they opposed it, Congress just sort of turned the whole idea away. And their thought is like, how Ted Stroll sort of explained it was, if the outdoor and mountain bike community is this divided between what they want, like, why are we going to pay them any attention? And so there you don't, you don't get any progress. Uh, you don't get any progress within federal funding. So yeah, I mean, it's a tough issue to, to bring to, to Congress, tough issue to, to really make an argument for better trails or better funding. Yeah. And I mean, it seems to be an extension of just our politics as well in this day and time. And, and who knows why that is, you know, I mean, it could be, it could be social media that amplify these things and, you know, things get blown out of proportion more quickly than they normally would or would have in the past. But yeah, there are two very distinct camps in mountain biking. You know, there's those who think we should be allowed to ride bikes in wilderness and those who don't. And it's really, I mean, it's having real consequences already. You know, Imba has lost a lot of support and they were, you know, up until recently, our best voice, our biggest group that represented mountain bikers and to sort of chip away at that in my opinion, it's, it's a bummer. I mean, it's grinding my gears. And at the same time, I understand what the STC is trying to do and naively, yeah, I just wish everybody could get along, but it doesn't seem like we're there right now. And then e-bikes as well, you know, it's a, it's, that's still a very dividing issue for mountain bikers and trying to decide like, is this a part of mountain biking or is it not? And you know, what do we do about it? And yeah, yeah, it would be nice if everybody could just be like, Hey, let's all just like support each other and doing what we want to do. And like, not, not put up barriers to other people, uh, especially when it's, it's not, it's no skin off of our back to accommodate. Yeah, for sure. And maybe this is a little bit naive on me to say, I know Imba has made this hard for a lot of people to understand, but I still see like you can support Imba's mission and you can support STC's mission at the same time. Like you can support local trails and you can also support bikes in wilderness and sort of realize that, yeah, even though AMBA has basically made it harder for the STC to accomplish their mission, like we wouldn't be as far in the sport or uh, have as great of land access 
without Imba and what they've done in the past for us also. Yeah. It's a really good way to put it for sure. Yeah. And it's, it's just like the Peloton thing. Like there, it's not one or the other, it's not good or bad. Like let's, let's try to make a way for all the stuff to work together. For sure. So another thing that's kind of a bummer that is a trend and that we'll continue to see is the struggle of the local bike shop. Doesn't seem like that's going to get any easier for them. Does it, Matt? No, I don't think so. I mean, my opinion is that bike shops are really going to have to be service focused with the growth of bikes online. You know, and for me, like usually when I go into a bike shop, like I'm either looking for something quick that I need like immediately, you know, maybe like a tire in the right size or uh, something like that, or I'm going in for service, you know, something that I can't perform at home. Bike shops are definitely going to have a place there, but I'm sure they have to be figuring out ways to survive without selling as many bikes as they once did. Yeah, I know one of the sort of local bike shops near me closed recently. And yeah, I've I've heard people just saying like, hey, like, where do I go now? You know, like, there's no shop near me. So now I'm gonna have to like expand my radius out, find somewhere else to go. And we we're having lunch recently with a friend who's starting a bike shop. He's, he's sort of like re- taking over an existing shop and rebranding it. And he's a really smart guy. And he was just saying like, Hey, like if you got any, any like advice or tips or like anything like you think would be helpful, like I'd love to hear it. And I had to think for a second. I was like, man, I don't know. Like (laughs) good luck. You know, I mean, it's, we say things and we hear things said a lot like, Oh, focus on service and, you know, do more community stuff, like do more group rides and give more money to local trails and stuff like that. And it's like, man, all that stuff costs money, but there's not like a real clear path to like how you're going to make up for the sales of the stuff you used to sell, the stuff people are buying online. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I decided to tell him like, I don't know. I don't know that there's anything I would suggest that hasn't been said before. And none of that stuff is like proven to work, you know? I mean, it works in some places, but yeah. it's not going to continue to work if, you know, today 50% of bike components and sales are online and tomorrow it's 75 like that's that's the way it's going you know it's not going to be even where we are right now it's going to get worse so it does seem to be not a good time to be in the local bike shop business yeah for sure i mean it seems like there there still has to be an appeal with beginners right who who don't know anything they're not confident in in finding the right bike and spending four thousand dollars online and hoping that it's it's the bike that uh that they want to start the sport on. So who do you talk to when you don't really know a whole lot about the mountain bike industry? Well, you go into a bike shop and you find somebody who can sort of guide you into finding the right bike and finding the right components and getting it set up properly and continuing service on it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. That's, that's the best route, but what people do is they watch Seth's bike hacks and (laughs) Seth, Seth is awesome. Like, and he's done a ton to grow the sport. Uh, but that's, that's now people's go-to thing is like, Oh, watch a YouTube video about it. And, and they're getting 90% of the info that they need out of that. Again, it's not, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, that's how it works right now. And, and so it is hard to differentiate that level of service for people. And I think, I think what's happening too, is the brands themselves are filling in that void. You know, that's, they're the ones who are saying like, man, we could just sell our bikes directly to consumers. And, you know, if they want to try them out, we'll drive our demo truck around the country and like give people a chance, but like it's a much leaner model and, and it supports that idea of more affordable gear as well. And so, yeah, unfortunately it seems like the local bike shop is caught in the middle and, uh, it's going to struggle a little bit. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, uh, not just like, but it, I, it's got to be pretty similar to bookstores when Amazon came out. Even Barnes & Noble like has downsized over the country and other stores like that have gone out of business. Yeah, that would be really interesting to look at what sort of the drawdown was. Um, I'm sure it was significant that the majority of local bookstores are gone. Um, but that's not to say that the they're all gone. I mean, they're, they, in my community in particular, there are a f- couple of local bookstores that still do okay. And they, they do what the local bike shops seem to be trying to do, which is hold more events and yeah, educational stuff and festivals and all that. So 
We'll see. I've got my fingers crossed. I'm rooting for the local bike shop for sure. Yeah. So related to that, this year in particular, we saw the end of Interbike. Maybe not forever, but at least the show for 2019 is canceled. And I'm kind of bummed. A lot of people cheered, you know, that announcement and were like, you know, it's about time and Interbike was going downhill for a long time. But yeah, I was a little, I was a little bummed. You just went for your first time this year and possibly last time so what, what are your thoughts on that <laughs> yeah right yeah I mean, it's hard to say because i like you've been going for what over 10 years and like you know i showed up this year and it's like hey it's my first one <laughs> and uh yeah like it was a it was an experience it's definitely an overwhelming experience there's a lot to take in there for us it's like i don't think readers really saw a whole lot of value in the tech coverage we were able to supply just because brands are unveiling their products throughout the year they're uh, hosting media camps and things like that. So it's just not as relevant. But um, yeah, I connected with so many brand representatives and everything during that time, which really allowed us to work with a lot of other brands and then get more coverage out because of that. So we can show face and then they can show us products that they have and that they want to get reviews out and they think the public will like. So for that, yeah, I mean, it was really, really important, it seemed like. Yeah. And what what seems to be driving this is what's driving all the other stuff that we've mentioned in this segment. I mean, it's the internet, you know, the orders are done online and over email. And so that was a big part of Interbike and not anymore. Um, same with Peloton, you know, I mean, now you can, you don't even have to go to a spin class. You don't have to get in your car and like go to the spin studio. You can just flick on your computer and spin on your bike in your basement if you want to. And so yeah, and local bike shops too, right? People are ordering online. So it's affecting it's affecting everything. And to me, maybe I'm an old-fashioned guy, but yeah, I think you miss out on a lot of that personal connection like you were talking about. And, and getting back to the Peloton thing too, I, I talked to a guy recently who said, I was asking him about this group road ride that he does like every, every weekday. And I was like, wow, that's impressive. How many people show up at 6 a.m. every weekday for this group ride. And he was like, well, there's about six to eight of us, but it used to be a lot more before everybody started getting Zwift, which is one of those indoor trainer services, virtual video game things. And, and yeah, I mean, that just hit me like, wow, you know, there's this community that people are missing out on. And for me, Interbike was that. It was a community is getting to know people that you see year after year, but I guess people are seeing less value in that. I mean, maybe we'll swing back around the other way once we realize what we've missed. But yeah, for now, it's it's kind of sad that there's not going to be an interbike. But the upside is there are plenty of other events that are going on throughout the year that seem to be getting bigger. And part of that seems to be brands really want to embrace like consumer events where they can, you know, really like not just let their dealers and media reps experience the brand, but they want consumers to be able to experience their brand in person. Yeah. I mean, I know at, uh, at Interbike for me, there's, I met a lot of people that are really cool to meet and I'm just thinking like, oh man, this person was really, really cool. Like, wouldn't it be cool to work with them more throughout the year? Just people that I enjoyed like talking to and it wasn't, it wasn't so businessy. It was just like, mm-hmm. Hey, this guy's like really cool or this girl's really cool. And she knows the product really well but on top of that they're just an interesting person or or whatever and uh yeah now you'll you'll see even less of those people throughout the year so yeah and it's just like events too that seem to be good at spreading ideas and you know inspiring people as well and so yeah i wonder if we'll miss out on some of that as well with people you know maybe in years past they would like walk around and see what everybody's doing and like aha i got a good idea for a product and yeah. Who knows now how that stuff's going to happen. Yeah. So finally, we wanted to talk about how mountain bike media is contributing to the sport or maybe like stirring up some trouble. So one of the stories that Matt, you reported on involved a mountain bike video that potentially was the reason that an enduro race was canceled. How did all of that go down? Yes, that was um, a pretty, pretty strange culmination of events. And so you had uh this newer enduro series throughout Colorado, and they partnered with Nate Hills, uh, Yeti Cycles writer and YouTuber, 
to sort of do their promotional event or promotional videos, promote the race. And then he was racing the whole series. And the first race of the season last year started at Buffalo Creek, which is a public trail network. The rest of them were in uh, bike parks. And I followed the series Revolution Enduro on uh, Instagram and Facebook and stuff because I almost raced that Buffalo Creek race. But then it sold out really quickly. Like a lot of people are really, really excited about it because it's not like a super gnarly venue. And you can sort of get a taste for Enduro without like the crazy courses at like Keystone or Winter Park or Steamboat or something they put on where you're scared you're going to flip over your handlebars like four times throughout the same trail. <laughs> and so uh, so the video that Nate Hills did for this Buffalo Creek race, you know, there are a couple, a couple of moments in here where him and his friend are skidding around some corners. And to be fair to them, in Buffalo Creek, it's kind of hard not to skid. It's really, really loose, kiddie-ler stuff. And some of the corners are just they're a little too sharp, so you can get going too fast in some areas, and it, it just ends up getting pretty hard to control your speed. Anyway, the Enduro was applying for their second year permit. Forest Service turned them down, citing the potential for skidding, alternative lines, uh, aggressive riding. You know, and, and uh, so I spoke with the Enduro organizers after this, and then I spoke with the execu- executive director of uh, Comba. I couldn't speak with the Forest Service because of the shutdown, but the executive director of Comba was like, yeah, you know, the Forest Service saw this video, and that was like one of the biggest reasons they cited, cited denying the permit to the race series again. On top of that, it's also like a really, really busy trail network, so they're just looking for events to cut down across the season, and their perception of Enduro and what they saw from this race made it an easy choice for land managers, the Forest Service, to say, no, you guys are not having this race again. One of the quotes that stuck out to me from Gary Moore at Comba was, you know, everybody, this isn't verbatim, but everybody wants to make the sport exciting and frenetic and eye-catching. And um, when mountain bike organizations are working with land managers, it's not really what uh, what land managers want to see mountain bikers doing on their trails. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it just, it kind of makes me think about like, what is the relation media to how the sport is represented? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? You know, I mean, I think a lot of us are guilty of it. I'm sure we are with some of the videos that we do on video share where it's really aggressive riding and people drifting and yeah, just being very, very aggressive because it is fun. It's exciting to watch. It inspires us to go out there and ride faster, ride harder, you know, get more stylish, get a cool picture for Instagram. But yeah, maybe in some cases it's not a good thing. Yeah. I mean, that's always been an issue. I know uh, Greg wrote a column about this a couple of years ago, I think, this the same idea that mountain biking can have like a bit of a perception problem based on the videos and the photos and things that we're posting online. And so, yeah, I mean, it can have real consequences. And so for starters, I guess all of us have to really be careful about what we're putting out there in terms of that media and thinking about like, well, what if somebody who doesn't know sees this, you know, what are they going to think about it? What, how's that going to affect our perception? And like you said, w- we tend to post a lot of this stuff as well. I mean, this is, this is part of the culture. This is part of the industry and, you know, in a lot of ways you can't get away from it. Uh, but I think our duty as media is to sort of, call it out when it's, when it's not right or, or make people aware at least of sort of the duality there, right? Like between this is marketing or like, this is a situation where this is okay. I mean, a lot of people are confused, right? They're like, Hey, well, you know, I saw a video of somebody riding on a wet trail and like, you're not supposed to ride wet trails. And it's like, well, that's true. Unless it's say your trail or say like, you went back and fixed it or, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things that you you maybe don't get from just watching a video and same with that Nate Hills video. I think that was one of the things that they said was like, look, he, he went out there and, and did that stuff, but we fixed the trails and like, we didn't, didn't do any damage. And I think maybe we can't assume that people know that, that know that there's a difference there between like what they see on camera and like what the reality is. And so, yeah, that's a challenge for us. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I get excited about certain photos and stuff and want to post them up and show people that are mountain bikers, like what the sport is like and like, Hey, you know, this isn't 
we're not these like dorky guys riding in skin suits, like riding bike paths in the woods and like smiling and stuff like that. Like <laughs> this is, this is a hard sport and there's like dangerous things. It's just as hard as, uh, any other mainstream sport out there. And so I get excited to show that, that perception of mountain biking to friends who don't mountain bike uh, mm-hmm. because I don't think like a lot of mainstream people realize that. Yeah. Right. And it's, you know, it's stereotypes. I mean, that, that exists for everything, every person that's just human nature. And so, you know, if the only thing you're exposed to is you see the videos of people riding aggressively and wearing like, you know, full body armor and full face helmets, like that might be your perception of mountain biking. And obviously it's much, much more diverse than that. And so, yeah, again, as media, like we try to show all of that, right? Like we're not going to just show like one side of the sport, try to show all of it and, and continue to educate people too, I guess. You know, it's interesting that the Forest Service would would be upset. You, you know, it would have been awesome to get their take on that because, again, you would think they would know better that that they've <laughs> rangers are out at the trails fairly regularly and they see families and like people out there like enjoying their ride and smiling, like you said, and like not riding aggressively. But there's all kinds of riders. Yeah, and I'll, I definitely plan on talking to them still whenever the government does open back up if it does ever, but I absolutely plan on talking to them still. And, uh, we'll update the story with any, any information on what they have to say. So, yeah, let's, let's just hope that, that they know better than that, that, that that's not what all mountain bikers do. I mean, just like, you can't say, you can't say all, you can't put everybody into one bucket for anything. Right. I mean, hopefully we've all learned that by race or gender or like anything like that. It just doesn't work out. There's plenty of exceptions. So yeah, mountain bikers are people too. Yeah. Cool. Well, we've covered a ton of ground here with the sport of mountain biking, where we're going in 2019 and beyond. And of course, we're going to be following all of these stories, continuing to provide updates and see where these things go. So be sure to follow single tracks on social media or even better check the website every day, every morning, come by. Cause we got new stuff, usually three to four articles every day or video shares or things. So it's a lot to keep up with. Just be sure to bookmark it, make it part of your routine, come back to the website and check it out. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace. Peace.